Welcome back to the Reed Connected Podcast. I'm Alexis Reed, along with my brother, Dr. Gerald Reed. And today we're going to talk about emotions. We all have them. They sometimes feel like they're all that exist in our worlds. They could drive behaviors, actions, motivation, and so much more. How are these constructs of abstract things that we can't see be so impactful in our lives? Today, we're going to talk all about emotion. So we've talked a lot about therapy and the therapeutic process in previous episodes and mental health and emotional health comes up so often, pretty much in everybody's life. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about what this therapeutic process is like when people come to you and say, listen, I'm feeling a lot of feels. I want to try to feel better. Help me to do that. Yeah, emotions are a big part of therapy because people come to therapy usually because they don't feel well. There's something that they're experiencing that is impacting their emotions and how they feel. One of the best quotes I think I heard from one of my patients at one point was, you know, I asked him why therapy is helpful. And he said, you know, I have these big, huge emotions and you really helped me to break them out into pieces and the parts to understand them. And that's what therapy sessions a lot of times is about trying to just break them down into pieces to understand, first of all, what is it that you're feeling? You know, we have more feelings than just sad, mad, and glad, and anxious. You know, there's there's a lot of nuances to feelings. There's a nice website called the Atlas of Emotions that you can go to to look at, you know, just different aspects of emotions that are there that help you to be more specific about what exactly it is you're feeling. You know, are you disappointed? Are you anticipating something that's making you anxious? Are you ruminating on the past that's making you feel regret or feel embarrassed or shame? Whatever it is, there's a lot of different emotions. So first of all, I just want to say part of therapy is is to get more in touch with exactly what you're feeling so it's not so vague or abstract. You know, I'm so glad you brought that up because in my graduate work, I was introduced to this psychologist known as Dr. Jerome Kagan, Jerry Kagan. You both share the same nickname. And the late, great Dr. Kagan is also a New Jersey native like you and I are and ended up in Massachusetts. And we were privileged enough to get to know him before COVID, before he passed away. And in my studies of developmental psychology and thinking about how we basically develop, evolve, and behave in our worlds. I really appreciated his work, not only for the twin studies he did or his studies on personality or his work that moved the field forward to understand child development, but he wrote this book that really resonated with me. It's called What is Emotion? And in that, one of the biggest takeaways that I had from reading that book was that in the English language, there aren't really a ton of different ways to get very specific about what we're feeling. In different languages, there's little nuances. Like when we talk about love, there might be like 13 or 14 different words that describe different levels and versions of love. But in the English language, we really just have that one word that we typically go to. Like you were saying, there's not just joy and sadness and anger and frustration. There's just so many different variations and levels of all those different feelings and emotions, but we don't have the language to describe it, which could become so frustrating and stifling just in the fact that we can't articulate how we're really feeling. No doubt. And think about how complex life is. You can have an emotion about something that could be triggered by so many different things. 
So to think that we just have basic emotions and, you know, to simplify it is, is kind of doing us a disservice about how complex life is. Even in one relationship, you can have such mixed emotions towards a person. So it's not so simplistic. That's why therapy is a good place to slow things down. And I ask a ton of questions, you know, what about this? What about that? What about in this context? Is it different? What exactly is it about that situation that leads you to feel this way? So I, I love that process. It really, it's important to me and it's important to my patients. Yeah, that's so important to think about. And one of the aspects of dialectical behavioral therapy that I really like is that word dialectic, right? That two things can coexist at the same time. Like I could really feel a lot of love, but also frustration at the same time. I could be grateful and sometimes sad, right? There's things that could come up and these emotions can exist together at the same time, but it can feel a little conflicting, right? As we're trying to experience what we're experiencing and figure out what to do next and how to get through it. So I imagine a lot of patients come to you and say, you know, I'm, I'm doing really well and this feels uncomfortable. I have a lot of students that I work with that sometimes are like, wait a minute, I'm doing better. Like I'm more efficient. I'm more on top of my work, but this feels uncomfortable because I haven't ever really felt this way before. How do I actually process that? How do I figure that out? What do I do with that? So I wonder if you can share maybe an anecdote or a little bit about your process when people come to you saying, I'm feeling a couple different things at the same time. How is that possible? And is that okay? Or what do I do to feel a little bit more comfortable with this uncomfortableness? Definitely. Yeah. You know, one of the older therapies, psychodynamic, psychoanalytic, really that type of therapy was about understanding conflicts that people are experiencing and resolving them. And, you know, a lot of the great work, people like Daniel Siegel, who are putting out a lot of great books about emotions and emotion regulation, a lot of it is integrating different aspects of what you're feeling into a whole so that you don't feel like you're conflicted. But, you know, like you said, things can coexist and you can feel more in touch with your feelings and your emotions. So, you know, like I said before, when I meet with someone and they're telling me stories about situations they're in or how they're feeling, I really want to get into the nitty gritty about, you know, tell me more about that. Tell me what that means to you when that situation happened. Tell me where you feel that frustration. What does that frustration mean to you? When have you felt that in the past? What is it about the situation? You know, kind of get into the cognitive behavioral aspects of the core beliefs. What makes that so hard for you? What makes that so difficult for you? And contextualizing it, you know, acceptance and commitment therapy looks at the context and contextualizing things. So what is the context in which this emotion arises and a context where it doesn't arise? And what is it about that context that's really triggering this emotion so we can make sense of the context itself? And by doing so, you can try to, you know, change some of the variables involved or make a couple alterations to, first of all, maybe the context itself or how you're reacting in that context. So I kind of see this episode as a journey that we're going on, right? We're talking a little bit now about how do we even describe what we're experiencing? How do we articulate it? How do we name it? How do we even figure out what we're trying to figure out? But there's so many other pieces to this process. So the beginning of coming into a therapeutic environment and saying, look, something's feeling off. I'm feeling a lot of feels. Let me figure this out. It sounds like you're saying like, we really need to understand what's happening first before anything else comes next. And when I think about emotion, I think about it as signals that are telling us something, like maybe something's up within us, something's going on in our environment that might not be 
jiving with us personally. There might be something that's going on that's interfering with things. Do you ever have people that come to you and say, listen, I'm not feeling well. Can you help me feel better? Like just flat out <laughs> asking you and expecting you to help them to feel better? Yeah, 100%. I mean, people come to therapy to feel better and they tend to be surprised when I tell them my job is not to make you feel better. My job is to help you to understand what you're feeling in the first place. And a side effect of going through therapy is actually feeling more settled and more grounded through the process. But yeah, it's not like a magic pill that's just going to you know, magically make you feel better. Sometimes people really need something to help them to be in the space and, and be ready to do therapy. But my job is not to just magically make them feel better because their emotions are there for a reason. And actually, the more that you understand yourself and your emotions, the more grounded you feel and actually the better you feel, you know, when you don't understand what's going on internally, that is one of the most dysregulating things that could happen to you. You know, you're on edge. You're kind of like constantly paranoid and on edge about what might trigger you or what's going on internally because you're overwhelmed and therapy is you got to understand yourself and make sense of what's going on internally and relationally and in your life and make sense of all the things I talked about. And the more you can understand, the more grounded you can feel. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I want to go, let's dive a little bit deeper into this, like emotions or signals, right? They tell us something. And I, even though I'm not a clinical psychologist, as I've mentioned before, I have a lot of training on this side of things because in my work, emotions are so closely related to executive function. It's like this, this system, this cycle that continues to happen. Dr. Imordino Yang says in her neuroscience work, when she talks about education, we feel, therefore we learn. And as we start to feel things, our limbic system and our emotional center of our brain is constantly interacting with the frontal lobes that allow for our executive functions to come online and help us to get things done or to shut them down. So I'm constantly thinking about emotions as signals. And my co-author and colleague, Dr. Lisa Carey and I, she talks a lot about how emotional regulation is so closely related to executive function. They're kind of like cousins, right? They're not the same thing, but they really interact with each other and they really play a really strong role in this. So I wonder if you could describe a little bit more about what are these signals of emotion? How do we process them? How do we better label them? And what kind of questions should we be asking to figure this out? Well, like you said, they are signals are telling us something, right? Emotions are kind of like that immediate reaction we're having that's telling us something. And it's connected to our thoughts because what we're thinking and what we believe and what we've experienced is in our brain, it's in our mind, it could be deeply in there. We may not even be aware of these thoughts and beliefs that are triggering these emotions, but the emotion is always felt. You're always going to feel that, right? You're anxious, you're panicking, you're like, whoa, whoa, where did that come from? So the emotions is really that the signal, like you said, it's because it's really salient, it's really pronounced, as opposed to maybe those the reasons that those emotions are coming, being triggered in the first place. So again, it's like you want to pay attention to that signal. And then you kind of work backwards and say, okay, first of all, give language to it. What are some ways you can give language to the emotion? Let's develop some different words you might use to identify it. You might even give kind of a list of emotions and say, which one is it? Pick it from the list. But again, it's like the emotion itself is that reaction. It's that signal. But then you got to kind of work backwards because those thoughts, those beliefs, those past experiences that are triggering that emotion, they're not so salient. They're not so present. You know, you kind of have to dig in to figure out where it's coming from. 
And sometimes you may think it's one thing, but it's actually something else. And that's why therapy is important. You might think, oh, I'm just, I can't stand this person. They're frustrating me. It's like, well, is it really about that or is it about something else that's going on? And, you know, that takes time to figure out. It's not always about one thing. It could be about multiple things too. Yeah. You know, the, the Yale Center for Emotion came up with this program called the Ruler Program. And within it, there's this amazing tool called the Mood Meter. And I was fortunate enough to be trained in that program when I was a teacher at a Montessori school in Boston. And, you know, we use this with our students all the time, especially the younger students who really didn't have the language or the ability to share exactly how they're feeling. A lot of times their emotions would come out in behaviors that sometimes could be misinterpreted. They might be miscommunicating exactly what their needs are. And it gets really complicated. It gets, you know, really integrated into different things. So on this mood meter, and I'll put a link in the show notes to this too, it's really nice because it talks about how we have different energy levels and then different contentedness levels. So it's like sometimes different levels of energy and how we're feeling can all contribute to what comes out and what it looks like. But really the whole process is to help these young learners or really all people, I think adults really benefit from this too, to understand that we all go through a range of emotions throughout our lives, sometimes throughout our day, sometimes throughout an hour, we might feel different levels or extremes of emotion as we're navigating through different challenges, different interactions, different experiences. And sometimes, especially when we have other compounding factors coming into play, it can get really confusing and disorienting. And from an executive function perspective, I say that sometimes leads to disorganization in our thinking, which could lead to an inaccuracy in how we're expressing ourselves or how we carry out different tasks or how we perform. So, you know, emotion is such an important driver to all of this. So, okay, we've got these signals. We're starting to label things. We're talking about how these different emotions can impact us or come from different experiences, different interactions. How do we actually provide a little psychoeducation around emotion, right? There's, I mentioned emotion regulation. I wonder how you teach what that is to either your clients, parents and families you work with, coaches, teachers, your therapists in training. How do you describe emotion regulation? Because we don't want to negate or deny the fact that these emotions come up, but we want to learn how to modulate them or regulate them a little bit differently. Yep. So there's two different approaches, I would say. One is through the talking process of therapy, and the other is making it more concrete. So there's, you know, you can have a whiteboard, you can have a worksheet, you can really write down the cycles that happen because emotions in some ways are habits. There's a situation that happens that triggers you to think or believe something, and then it triggers the emotion. And if you really kind of pay attention to someone's life and let them reflect on their life, they're going to see patterns. They're going to see themes. Oh, in this type of situation, this is what happens with this person or when, you know, in that situation. So you can either talk about it, which can bring some insight and awareness to the cycles and the patterns that happen. When that happens, that triggers me to think or believe this. And I begin to feel that. And then I act out something because again, emotions lead us and drive us to certain behaviors. And I'll get into that later. So you, you might want to talk about it, but you also, you know, sometimes making it more concrete, we can kind of draw the patterns. We can say, hey, this is connected to this thought. This thought is connected to this feeling and so forth. And so CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, leans heavily into kind of worksheets and and making things more concrete for people to see the patterns to make sense of it. 
Yeah. And in my intro, I was talking about these abstract constructs, which is really just like these these things that just kind of come out of nowhere. Like we don't see them. We might not even be labeling the same way. If I'm feeling the exact same thing you are, you might be describing it differently than I am because you have different experiences or different language. It's so interesting that these things kind of come out of nowhere. And I just want to press pause for a minute because there's some terminology we're using that I want to make sure is super clear to the audience and to our listeners. This word trigger is coming up so much in like social media and more mainstream media that people are using it to describe different things that happen. Can you operationalize that and and just break it down to describe what a trigger is so our audience really understands what we mean when we're saying that word? Yeah, so it could be internal or external. So it's anything basically that contributes to the activation of an emotion. That emotion could be anything, anger, fear, frustration, or embarrassment, whatever it is. Another terminology for it is an antecedent. What comes before the emotion? And again, it could be internal. It could be something that you think about, right? Like a thought pops in your head that all of a sudden triggers you to begin to ruminate on something and then feel, let's say, frustration or disappointment. Or perhaps it could be external. It could be that someone says something to you or someone acts a certain way towards you or you make a mistake on something. Those are antecedents to the emotion being activated. And again, like I said before, it's not that the emotion just randomly becomes activated. There's a lot of thoughts, beliefs, past experiences, and dynamics that contribute to that emotion being activated that you have to try to understand better. Yeah. And when you say rumination, it's kind of like you get stuck on that one thought. It's like the only thing. It's like a reel in your mind that just keeps replaying over and over again. And you could see how an emotion or a feeling or a memory could come up and just get activated to just keep becoming the center of our focus, which could really impede a lot of our day to day. So I want to just bring in this cultural context for a second because emotion might show up and look different depending on how you were raised and the context for which you mostly are living in. Because, you know, sometimes there's a stigma behind having too much emotion or too little emotion or different extremes of emotion, or it could be really taking out of context depending on the way we communicate emotion. So I wonder if you could speak a little bit to that piece of things. Because when people are processing how they're feeling, there are all of these complexities to how you're feeling and how you're experiencing things through an emotional lens. You know, especially in Boston, we often work with people that didn't always live in Boston, didn't grow up in Boston. They might come from a totally different context or country or culture or living environment. And it might shift and change the way in which they're processing how they're feeling because they might be feeding off of the context that they're currently in. And it might be difficult to kind of put all those pieces together and process things because it might just be different from what they're used to. So I just unloaded a whole lot of cultural components of emotion, but I wonder if you could touch upon at least some of those in thinking about how do we rectify our feelings? How do we figure out what is a, a good or a bad or emotion? Is that even a thing? Hmm, where do I start with this? So let's think about, you know, there are cultures where you, you express your emotions in different ways, like you said, even even positive emotions, right? Some cultures, you know, you may approach someone and give them a hug, and that's an expression of affection, which is considered normal in their culture, you know, in some other cultures that could be invasive and that could be considered crossing boundaries. 
other emotions that could be there. Some are expressed, some are suppressed, right? Some cultures, you don't want to act proud. That's looked down upon. You don't want to express your individual nature and be proud of yourself. You want to focus more on the collective and feel like you're contributing to collective. It's not about you. In other cultures, feeling proud of yourself is important. And you do want to identify who you are and express your individuality with a sense of pride. And who's to say which is right or wrong? It depends on the culture and what people care about and what brings meaning to them. So I got to be really careful to understand the cultural background. Like you said, that's a really great point that you're bringing up. And some emotions, like, you know, what people are afraid of could vary on different cultures, right? You know, some people could be afraid of completely different things, depending on the culture that they're part of. How anger is expressed could be different, like you said. The way in which people are allowed to express their opinions. And you got to understand, and sometimes people can suppress things about themselves because culturally it's kind of conditioned. So... Again, it's not about right and wrong. It's about understanding and understanding how that affects the person's well-being. And my job is to figure out how does the culture impact the person and, and vice versa. And also, most importantly, how is the well-being of the person play a role here so that I can prioritize their well-being? And, you know, I've had someone who felt like the culture they came from, they wanted to integrate not only their culture, but also the culture that they're living in now. And that's a process of integrating different aspects of different cultures rather than just kind of teetering between one or the other or only aligning with one or the other and kind of embracing that, which is a very conflicting process, right? And that's going to create a lot of emotions in of itself. So so that's a really good point you're making. Yeah, I appreciate that. It's tricky. And for the record, I don't think there are good or bad emotions. I was just queuing you up to see your wisdom and insight around that. But, you know, it's it's interesting and, and I want to just kind of tackle some of these more difficult questions about emotion because oftentimes there's mixed emotions. Sometimes we want to turn emotions on or off. Oftentimes, more often than not, there's a lot of nuance to the emotion that we're experiencing. We might overreact or underreact to different situations. And sometimes they might not even be accurate responses to the situation. Sometimes our brains can play tricks on us too, where we might react to something that might be fear-based in one situation or context, but might not be in another, where it can get really confusing. And we might have these responses that can really impact the way in which we navigate through our days. No doubt. You can have two people in the same situation, let's say facing the same problem, and they can have very different reactions emotionally. And part of that is their temperament, right? Not everybody's the same. Some people have more emotionality and what we call neuroticism than others, which means you're more prone to negative emotions. There are differences in personality traits and temperament that exist between people. So two people, again, can experience one situation or one problem with very different reactions. Good connection back to Dr. Kagan's work around temperament and a lot of the twin studies he did that even two twins that could be raised exactly the same might have very different reactions and responses and temperaments. It's really fascinating. I wanted to talk about all this because I really would like to try to break down some of that stigma around having and feeling emotion because however we present or express the emotions for which we're feeling, they're all valid, right? They're all things that we feel and experience. And I would say, and I'll be curious to hear what you have to say, that one of the big parts of therapy and mental health is really figuring out how we kind of sit with and live with emotion in a way that doesn't 
take over our lives and allows for us to still work towards goals and perform in ways that feel comfortable and supportive. Definitely. Any therapist of any theoretical orientation, any therapy that they're doing, it's commonality between all therapies that you want to help people to face their emotions. We're very good as human beings at avoiding difficult emotions. The classic example is using substances to numb emotions. That's kind of the the classic example of that, but there's a lot of different ways we do it. We can project onto other people. We can basically accuse other people of feeling the way that we're feeling ourselves, or we could distract ourselves to no end with every distraction you can think of to just not face what you're feeling. And look, again, I don't want to say what's right or wrong about how people deal with their emotions, but at some level, it could be that the avoidance is preventing you from facing some aspect of your life that's really meaningful and really important, that maybe there needs to be a resolution to it. And I don't go into working with people assuming I know what that is. It could be anything. It could be a problem that they haven't solved yet in their life. It could be a lot of times it's coming to a, a form of acceptance about themselves, about their life, about whatever, about other people about life as a whole. Acceptance is a really, really hard thing to get to. But in my opinion, a lot of times therapy moves people towards that, regardless of what they're dealing with. But it could be a lot of things. It could be about the way that they make assumptions or the expectations that they have, the biases and how they think. It's just getting to know your thought process and your beliefs and your experiences and how that activates the different emotions. But like I said, and like you're saying, it's a really important point. Nobody likes to feel negative emotions. I mean, some people, you know, maybe embrace it, but maybe that's their, their inclination. And you can think of like comedians, right? Comedians tend to be kind of depressed or have a hard time in life and they channel their negative emotions, even creative people with music, right? Like sometimes when I'm most disappointed in my life, I come up with the best song that I've ever come up with, right? And so, you know, people can learn how to engage with their emotions and, and see what they can do with it. And sometimes it's channeling and sometimes it's understanding and resolving something inside themselves. Yeah. And sometimes when you go back to some of the most beautiful music and you really listen to the lyrics through a different lens and you recognize actually what the story might be behind those lyrics, you're like, oh, that might have come from a really dark place. <laughs> right. And and that's okay. I often say to my clients and the people I work with that sometimes the most beautiful things come from some of the hardest moments. And sometimes the greatest challenges teach us the greatest lessons. And I think that's really important to consider. And at the time of this recording, we're now in January 2023. I personally just went through a big milestone birthday this year. And, you know, doing a, a lot of self-reflection, thinking about different chapters and phases of life and that sometimes different responses to emotions serve different purposes. You know, I think about my personal trajectory that there's different points in time where I might have been more social or I might have been more focused on my work or I might have been overworking at different points in time. And all of those things, I think, were protective to some point right? With the recognition and reflection of how it's impacting me. And I think that's a really important investigation. And as we go into quote unquote, the new year, I think it's important for us to do that investigation to see how some of our emotions, our habits, our behaviors either serve us well or don't and see how we want to maybe pivot from them, amplify them, shift and change them so that we're working towards a trajectory that feels like it's meaningful and purposeful for us without letting the overabundance of emotions or really 
heightened emotions take over and hijack that path or that journey. Yep, no doubt, no doubt. There's a researcher, I think his name is Bonanno, and his research suggests that people who have gone through trauma, like there's no one way that people get through it. First of all, a lot of people experience something traumatic in their life and they don't always develop PTSD, but there's a lot of different ways in which people can navigate that. And there's not necessarily a one way, one direct route to dealing with that. So like you're saying, like emotions, look, they're telling us something. They're just letting us know something's going on. It's good to have emotions. You wouldn't want to not feel something, right? If we're sad, it means that something is meaningful to us. And we want to know what's meaningful to us. Maybe we wouldn't pay attention to what's meaningful to us if we didn't feel sad. Anybody who has lost somebody that's important to them, I said, however sad you feel is how much love you felt towards that person. It's it's a parallel, right? And to have one, you have the other. So it's it's telling you how, how darn meaningful that person was to you and what a beautiful thing that is. So emotions are important to us. Yeah. In that same vein, I work with a lot of perfectionists, as you might imagine, And they have a lot of anxiety that's tied up in them wanting to do their best work, which definitely impacts their ability to activate their executive function systems. And, you know, I always say, there's a reason you're anxious about this. It means you really care, (laughs) right? And the things we care most about sometimes can be the things that are most impacted by these big emotions, like you said, because we care a lot about them. And to go back to your your comment about post-traumatic stress and thinking about trauma, there's also a whole body of research that's really wonderful that Scott Barry Kaufman is a huge advocate for and does a lot of work around with his colleagues about post-traumatic growth, right? What do we actually learn from these hard, difficult experiences? Not to negate the difficulty in those experiences or take away from how difficult they are, but to really think about what can be gained from them, these situations. And when you go through trauma, it's really hard to hear this and to even think about it. But just to recognize that sometimes the most difficult, challenging, darkest moments, there could be some lessons in learning. And oftentimes when we're going through that process and that journey, the people around us can be those who benefit the most from those experiences. Just hearing, seeing, supporting, and experiencing all that you might be going through, sometimes it helps to put things in perspective for others too. So there's so many complexities, there's so many nuances, there's so many different ecological factors that are involved in how emotions play a role in our lives. But I I want us to go back to this journey that we're on because we talked about how do we describe what we're feeling? How do we name and label them? How do we start to recognize what these signals are telling us? What do we start to do with that in the process? And then there's this whole other aspect of things that personally I get a little bit frustrated by because in social media world, it's almost like if you feel big emotions, you need to have a psychological diagnosis for these big emotions. Like you need to be labeled with something. So I'm I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about this idea of mental health diagnoses and how it describes some of the symptoms related to bigger emotions. And and hopefully I imagine, Jared, that you're going to talk a lot about how we all have extreme emotions at some point in our life. It doesn't necessarily mean that we fall into a specific diagnosis through the DSM, which is used to label individuals with mental health needs. Well, 
emotion dysregulation, which is essentially having emotions that just feel overwhelming and dysregulated and kind of disproportionately extreme to different situations. So that's one way to look at it is that when it becomes clinically significant, it's like your emotions in relation to the situation you're in is disproportionately extreme. And that could be subjective and kind of have a debate about what constitutes disproportionate, right? But that's kind of the idea behind it. And and emotion dysregulation actually is an underlying factor of all different diagnoses. Whatever you want to label someone as, whether they're generalized anxiety disorder, major depressive disorder, social anxiety disorder, emotion dysregulation is, is really at the heart. And Dr. David Barlow at CARD really emphasized this, that regardless of what diagnosis we're talking about, it's emotion dysregulation. And so let's get to the core of that and help people with their emotion regulation, regardless of what diagnosis they have. The diagnosis is kind of a different manifestation of it, and it may look differently. There could be different factors involved, but at the core of it, emotion dysregulation underlies it. So in my opinion, if you look at People who have mental health challenges, you can think of emotion dysregulation being at the heart of it, and then there's a cascading downward effect. So you can think of an example, right? Someone who has a hard time, let's say, dealing with uncertainty. So anytime there's uncertainty in their life, they get really anxious and they become dysregulated because they don't know what to do with that anxiety and the anxiety that comes from uncertainty. They just kind of freak out and become overwhelmed and have all these negative thoughts. And and there's a cascading negative spiral that in turn creates what we call mental illness or whatever we want to label it as, generalized anxiety disorder. But essentially what it is, is there's something that's an antecedent that's triggering feeling anxiety. In this case, it's uncertainty. And the person doesn't have any any ability to do something about that anxiety. And then all of a sudden, they start to avoid things. They start to ruminate. They start to panic or the behaviors are, are driven by this anxiety or to avoid the feelings themselves and their life becomes more constricted. They stop doing things, so then they become depressed because they stop doing things. They don't act themselves anymore, so they lose touch with who they are. All this stuff, but at the core of it, again, it's like, let's go back and start from the beginning. Okay, uncertainty is a trigger for you. You might want to figure out why that is. Maybe there's reasons for that, but also the most important thing is help people to understand that and, and address that. It could even lead to substance use, and that becomes a problem in and of itself, and then that exacerbates everything. So regardless of what diagnosis we're saying, things could really cascade, but it really starts from that emotion dysregulation, and, and that's why the therapy that Dr. Barlow created is really focusing on that. What are the antecedents? What are the triggers? And what are the cycles that maintain the cycles of this emotion dysregulation? Yeah, I'm going to press pause on that exact point because I think it's, you know, what are the things that continue these cycles? What are the things that rehash these emotions over and over again is really the key that sometimes leads to a diagnosis versus I had a really bad week, right? And I think the other piece too that you mentioned was thinking about transitions and changes, unpredictability, that leads to this disorganization that could feel really overwhelming. And when I think from an executive function perspective, and we think about learners in particular, if you get stressed or anxious because you're unsure of something or a big transition's coming, you don't know what to expect, it leads to this heightened sense of stress and anxiety where oftentimes this emotional trigger 
will actually impact an executive function behavior, right? Or a cognitive skill related to executive function, like being able to organize your thoughts, which if you're unable to regulate your emotions, it's going to be even more difficult to organize your thoughts, establish a plan, work towards executing that plan, even higher order in some of these cognitive thinking skills, being able to prioritize where to get started, what's most important, what do I need to do, how am I doing, like all of those things can get impacted, which I think solidifies and strengthens this negative cycle, this downward cascade, as you're describing, that amplifies the emotion which can really get in the way of forward progress. And a lot of times in the classroom, we might see students who are acting out, who might just be dissociating and just shutting down, maybe not even showing up. They might have biological and physiological reactions and responses to these kinds of stressors where as educators who aren't therapists, right? We're not expecting them to be psychologists or therapists, they might just see that as disengagement. But what is that disengagement actually from? Why is it happening? Is it something that happens all the time or is it just a short burst of this behavior? So there's so much to just consider. So from an educational perspective, I often will teach educators and adults that work with younger learners or just learners in general that we need to consider that disengagement and these different behaviors might often be triggered by an emotional response. And not that we need to, again, be therapists and treat them for whatever they're experiencing, but just acknowledging what's happening for an individual is really empowering. And nine times out of 10 with the people that I work with, my clients will say, you know, I just wish somebody asked me what was going on and how could they help without making assumptions, without trying to fix the problem, without telling me I shouldn't be feeling these emotions. Just really asking and getting curious about what's going on. How could I help you? This, this something seems off. So that leads me to thinking a little bit more about what do we do when we're around people who are experiencing big emotions, who are going through this experience of feeling dysregulated and hopefully on a journey or a path to getting the resources and supports that they need. What do we do to help support this process for people who are going through it? Well, it's always good to ask questions instead of making assumptions. You never know what people are going through or what they're experiencing. And another thing to remember, too, is that we tend to focus on behaviors and the, the downward spiral of people's problems rather than the emotion itself, right? Because when people are having a hard time emotionally, they could do things that are unpleasant to other people and it creates conflict, it creates friction. And so someone in the room's got to be able to have the frame of mind and the patience to slow things down and to go back to what is actually going on for this person. Let's not focus on all these behaviors and, and all the cascading downward spirals, but like what is at the core of it? Let's go backwards. And what are the real problems the person's having that haven't been solved? What are the real thought patterns that are leading them to feel a certain way that's dysregulating them? all that stuff and to support them with that. And and to be frank too, you know, the person going through therapy, there is responsibility on them, in my opinion, to invite other people into their process if they feel comfortable doing it. Because other people, if they have no insight into what's going on because they're shutting down or they're avoiding everybody in their life who cares about them, who wants to help them, 
it doesn't really help very much. It just creates more friction and it's a missed opportunity when people can learn how to support you. Like that's what they're there for. These people are the people who you can count on to support you and to help you. So, you know, as you're going through therapy, it's important to gain a lot of insight into yourself and to find ways to allow other people to support you and be part of your process and to also just celebrate the little successes that you have that other people may not realize. Share that little success of things that you did that you feel proud of that you really figured out a way to regulate yourself or try something different or solve a problem or or use a strategy let other people really be part of your process because people who love you and care about you genuinely you're lucky if you have that it's not great to dismiss how important those people are in your life when you're feeling bad very true and often when we're feeling bad that's exactly what we do is we shut off the people we love and care about the most because we're trying to either protect them or isolate ourselves to try to figure it out on our own it's it's a really interesting cycle and pattern that sometimes comes up but the investigation of these habits these behaviors that are related to this impetus of an emotion that comes up that directly relates to it is really important and I think more than ever, I, I talk about this a lot, that especially after this time of COVID, not just because of the pandemic, but because of so much that emerged during this time where people started paying attention differently to different things in the world and in history, that I think that we're all at a different level of emotional well-being, that I think we're all at a, a different baseline of anxiety than we have been before. And it probably is a, a lot higher than it ever has been as a collective. I would love to see research on that one day, but I could imagine that everybody's experiencing that in some way. And I think it's emotionally exhausting and draining what we've been through. I mean, Lex, your point is well taken because going through life, I don't think we as human beings realize how things affect us. There's so many things that affect us on a daily basis that we don't realize. I mean, you can just have the news on for like a couple hours in the day and you don't realize how much that affects you. You can be scrolling through social media. There could be just things that are considered normal that really, you know, you got to take a step back and say, wait, why have I normalized this so much to the fact that it's creating stress or depression and I'm allowing it to just be part of my life and not even realizing how, how I'm interpreting it or affecting me. So it's really important to just take a wide scope and to see, wait, like how is this affecting me? Even like relationships, what about this relationship? Maybe I need to help this relationship get better because it's a constant thing that's creating stress or there's underlying emotions. So maybe I need to deal with that and, and make it better because it's unnecessarily creating stress or distress in, in me. Oh my gosh, just today I have a new news app on my phone and there are these updates and alerts which I need to turn off the notifications because I noticed just seeing the content in the title of some of these news articles was making me stressed and sad. And it felt horrible to think this, but you know, I said to myself, I know that this stuff happens every day all around the world, but just seeing this one headline of this one incident is stressing me out as if it was happening to me personally. Right. And I think that's part of the point. Right. I think the news and the media is trying to get us to emote, to connect, to feed into some of the fear of all of the terrible things that do happen in the world. We were watching CBS Sunday morning recently, and they had like one little blip of one positive thing that happened in 2022 out of a, a whole barrage of all of the bad things that happened. It's like, wait a minute. 
we should flip this narrative a little bit. We could acknowledge the stuff that doesn't go well, the stuff that is sad and traumatic, but we also need to really shed a little bit more focus on the things that do go well. And, and Jared, I don't know if you know the research behind this, but I say this at least once a week to my clients that I have no idea why our human brains over-focus on the things that are negative, right? That one critique that you got in comparison to thousands of positive things that somebody could ever say to you from like the smallest hug or smile from somebody that you have a connection with. But that one thing that might've been negatively said to you is the thing that you focus on. I have no idea why our brains do that, but that that inclination is so devastating for so many people because it ends up coloring their day or their week or their lives. Yeah, we're, we're very self-protective, you know, in some ways that could be evolutionarily the psychology of it, that we always want to be aware of what the threats might be to us. And as, as society has changed, those threats change from things that used to be more primal to things that are more social and relational and about our image and about all this stuff. So that definitely is a big part of it. We're a very self-protective species. And as we're getting towards the end of this episode, you made a really good point. There are reasons to feel negative emotions about bad things that happen in life. And that's important because that makes us realize that we should care and helps us to realize that we want to make the world a better place. And at the same time, and even with things that happen to us, you know, there's negative things that happen to us that are challenging or stressful or traumatic. And I said this to one of my patients going through a lot of different things. I said, remember that it's easy to forget that a full life is all different emotions. And as much as there's bad, there's good. There's a lot of good. And it's our job, it's our responsibility to not lose sight of that and to hold on to that because otherwise it's just all darkness. And the darkness is like a wildfire inside of us and then we spew that onto other people we have to remember to realize that life is not just darkness and sadness it's also all those positive emotions and it's more than just happiness and excitement and what we call nowadays a dopamine hit it's more than that it's it's being satisfied fulfilled grateful it's being in awe it's being curious it's being open-minded it's so many different emotions that you can have that we have to remember and embrace because if we don't they will go away and especially now in society it's very easy to fall into despair because it's just being bombarded onto us and the reality of life is not all despair and doom and gloom but sometimes we have to be the ones that activate those positive emotions we have to be part of that and if we're not part of it it's going to disappear because you know it's a feeling it's not like something that's out there it's not like positive feelings and positive emotions and and meaning in life and good things randomly happen like we have to be part of that as human beings we have the ability to be part of creating that and so I think we're at a time in society right now, we got to remember that and, and make good things happen. And that could be something so small. Just remember, a very small thing can have a big positive impact on someone else, and that could in turn help someone else to help someone else. So a full life is full of emotions. It's everything. It's sadness, it's crying, and it's laughter, it's joy. That is what a full life is. A full life is not being happy all the time and it's not being depressed all the time. That's not a full life. So we have to find ways to embrace all of it because that's what life is. 
Very well said, Gerald. And as I tell my clients all the time, I can't control the darkness and the negative things that happen in our world, but I can control the light that I share and shine. Sometimes it's not always as bright as other times, but that's the only thing I know I have control over. And hopefully it ignites somebody else's light or helps to amplify others. And that's the point of the work that you and I do every day. And hopefully that message shines through and is resounding through this podcast as we hope to continue to shed more light. And we're grateful for all of you. And we hope everybody is well. And we look forward to one more episode in the season, and then we'll come back after a few months. But please feel free to catch up on other episodes as we move forward. And thanks so much for your time here today on Read Connected Podcast. Thanks, Lex. Great talking with you again. Thanks for tuning in to the Read Connected Podcast. Please remember that this is a podcast intended to educate and share ideas and is not a substitute for professional care that may be beneficial to you at different points of your life. If you're in need of support, please contact your primary care physician, educational institution, or support staff at your place of employment to seek out referrals for what may be most helpful for you. Ideas shared here have been shaped by many years of training, incredible mentors, research, evidence-based practices, and our work with individuals over the years, but is not intended to represent the opinions of those we work with or are affiliated with. The Reed Connected Podcast is hosted by Alexis Reed and Dr. Gerald Reed, is produced by Lauren Biza, our communications and marketing coordinator is Colin Faley, and original music is written and recorded by Gerald Reed. If you want to follow along on this journey with us, the Reed Connected Podcast will be releasing a new episode every two weeks each season, so please subscribe for updates and notifications. And you can follow us on Instagram at Reed Connected Podcast and Twitter at Reed Connected. R-E-I-D connected. We're grateful for you joining us and look forward to future episodes. In the meantime, be curious, be open, be well.